Well, this morning we're going to conclude our series in 1 Samuel. It's been a rich time of study, I think, in these chapters together, especially this book. It's a wonderful book that paints for us rich pictures of God's grace and the way he works in and through failure and struggle. And, um, yeah, I'm just thankful for this time that we've had in the book of 1 Samuel. Lord willing, um, after get back from sabbatical this summer, Lord willing, we'll be back in 2 Samuel in the fall. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, last week, if you remember, we saw both David and Saul responding to their own fears in different ways. David fled into exile in Philistia, and if you'll remember, he set up shop in one of their towns called Ziklag, and all of that because he was afraid of Saul, that he was again hunting him down, and that he was again going to take his life. So he fled into the lands of the Philistines to escape Saul. Saul, prompted by not fear of David so much as fear of the Philistines, consulted with a medium in the city of Endor and began to seek guidance from the Lord in that awkward and disobedient way. Nevertheless, Samuel was brought back for a time to instruct Saul, and Saul, he was told, Samuel told Saul again what he told him while he was living. The kingdom has been taken away from you, and you're going to die. And so we see that very fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy, even from the dead, come true in chapter 31. What's the fallout from all of this? How's the book wrap up? Well, this morning we're going to consider the fallout of both David's actions and Saul's actions, as well as the finale of the book and how it wraps up. And what you will see, I trust, as we work our way through these final chapters is the overwhelming and dominant grace of God in the, in the narrative. Because in many ways, David and Saul are sinning in similar ways. They're disobeying the Lord out of fear. They're not trusting him as they ought. And yet, how very different their lives end up. I want you to see just how similar their sin actually is. In chapter 27, this is just a reminder from last week. Do you remember that David accepted the Philistines as his own personal Lord and Savior? Do you remember that? 1 Samuel 27, 1 to 4. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Because they are going to provide me the security and the safety that I need. Well, Saul did something similar. He didn't flee into the arms of the Philistines. He fled from the Philistines, but he embraced a medium at Endor as his own personal mediator between God and man. 1 Samuel 28, the Philistines assembled and came and camped at Shinuam. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. They're both seeking substitute saviors. David in the form of the Philistines, Saul in the form of a medium. And this morning we're going to see what resulted from both the actions of David and Saul and how each of them responded. It teaches us lessons for our own lives, especially how we respond to fear. Notice the similarities between David and Saul again. Both are afraid, albeit for different reasons. They both initially seek God. David writes psalm after psalm after psalm. Saul just here in chapter 28 
seeking and inquiring of the Lord, but they don't find her to be as responsive as they would like him to be. They both practice a kind of deception to fix their problem. Saul, in disguise, remember, consults a medium, while David, through lies, paints himself as an enemy of Israel to get into the good graces of the Philistines. And yet, as God begins to expose them in their various pursuits, the results and responses are vastly different. What are they and why the different responses? So this morning, two points to our sermon. We're going to look, first of all, at the fallout from the fearful fix. That is the fearful attempt on both David and Saul to fix their problems. What was the fallout of that? And then finally, the finale to the fearful fix. What resulted in the lives of David and Saul specifically? First of all, the fallout from the fearful fix. What came as a result of David and Saul's fearful attempts to fix their own problems? David fleeing into the hands of the Philistines. Saul going to a medium at Endor. Well, we're going to begin with Saul, jumping back into last week's chapters before turning to David in chapter 29. So first of all, let's consider what happened to Saul after he used the medium at Endor. He uses the medium to summon the prophet Samuel back from the dead, and Samuel tells him the following in chapter 28, verses 15 through 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, referring to chapter 15. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be shall be with me. That is in the place of the dead. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And we see that very thing fulfilled. So in verses 17 and 18, Samuel restates why Saul isn't hearing from God. God had told Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites and to keep none of the spoils for himself, but he didn't obey. Through Samuel, God said, I'd rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. And he rejected Saul as king. Now, how did Saul respond to that news? Look at verse 20 of chapter 28. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear. Fear didn't go away, it just intensified. Filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. He simply collapsed. Then he stayed, and he has a meal. Look at verse 21. The woman came to Saul, that is the medium at Endor, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you must also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread out of it. She put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Chapter 28 concludes with Samuel filled with fear, 
unable to eat at the news of his death being imminent. And the last scene of Saul's life is the king of Israel eating a meal with a pagan witch. Several times in his life, Saul grieved over his sin. He did it here in 1 Samuel 28. There are two types of sorrow, though, over sin. And you know these. There's worldly sorrow that arises for all kinds of reasons. Embarrassment, self-pity, self-condemnation, fear. None of these things equal repentance. There are actually two ways to tell what we believe. What our mouth says, but more importantly, what our life says. If what our mouth says differs from what our life says, God always accepts the testimony of our life. When Saul's mouth, and with his mouth, he said, God is king. But with his life, he acted like he was. See, it's not our mouths that God ultimately takes as the indicator of what we believe. It's what our life says. And Saul's life preaches loud who his king is. It's him. No matter what he says with his mouth, watch his life. And he's making decisions based on what is in his own best interest all the time. A repentance that does not change you in life won't save you in death. This is how Samuel said it. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he first initially announced the kingdom being removed from Saul? He said, rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's as the sin of witchcraft. It's almost like Samuel was prophesying how all this was going to end. It's going to end with witchcraft. It's going to end with you seeking out a medium because the Lord has taken the kingdom from you. A lot of us may have trouble seeing that because our small areas of disobedience don't seem to have a huge impact on our lives in the moment that we'll be okay. But Samuel's statement was not an exaggeration because when you say no to God, that's the essence of witchcraft. It's a satanic spirit. Deliberately saying no to God is like the sin of divination. This is why Samuel told Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul's small compromises had grown into full-orbed dependence on the demonic at the end of his life. Here's how 1 Chronicles 10 summarizes it. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That's Samuel's epitaph, according to the chronicler. That's the fallout. What about David? What was the fallout of his fearful fix? Well, this is recorded for us in chapter 29 as his involvement with the Philistines comes to a head. As the Philistines prepare to engage Israel in another battle, the men of Philistia tell Achish to send David away. They're fearful that David is going to turn on them and not prove loyal to the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines already had word about David. They knew that David had killed his tens of thousands. They knew David was a mighty warrior of warriors. And they told Achish, "Uh, we don't like this guy being among us. He is liable to turn on us on a dime and kill us. So we need to send him away, get him out of here before we try to engage Israel ourselves. 
Akish is somewhat tentative about that proposal, though, because he has an entirely different opinion of David. We're told in chapter 29 that according to verse 3, Akish finds no fault in David. Akish tells David that he has been honest with him and that he has found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day in verse 6. He says in verse 9, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Really? Well, according to Achish, it's true, but we know that's not the case. If you were paying attention last week, you know that David was quite deceptive in the way he interacted with the Philistines, part out of prudence and part just out of his own fear. In chapter 7, we're told David's, or chapter 27, we're told what David's real motives were. Look at 1 Samuel 27, verses 9 to 12. Here's what was really going on in David's heart and mind as he was going about all of this with the Philistines. We read, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter sense to his people, Israel. Therefore, he he shall always be my servant. See, Achish doubles down and trusts David implicitly, all the while David being deceptive to him. In chapter 29, Achish eventually tells David, look, I like you, but i got to listen to other people around me. We're fighting this battle together. They don't like you. They don't trust you. Ironically, they have more knowledge of David than their own king does. But basically, Achish says, look, the lords don't approve of you. Go back now. Go peacefully that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So just go. And Achish tells David in chapter 29, verse 9, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us into battle And so the chapter ends with David leaving the land of Philistia. Now, what's going on here? If you think about it, Saul seeks a medium out to hear from the Lord, and Saul comes, Samuel comes back and tells him, You're going to die. David seeks to have the Philistines as his own personal Lord and Savior. And he gets out of it, scot-free, like he escapes. Because think of what could have happened. There could have been a recognition. Somebody could have ratted him out and said, hey, Day, I overheard that David is actually here. He, he's not all he's cracked up to be. We need to take care of this. Maybe one of the lords just would have gone and taken care of David himself, or at least tried to, engaged in some sort of conflict or some sort of battle. Or maybe Achish would have had his heart turned, the, the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord could have revealed to him, hey, you got a, you got a guy in your midst that's gonna, that's not honest. You need, he's gonna turn on you, but none of that happened. The Lord providentially guided a military strategy such that the men of Philistia said, hey, we don't think it's good that David would come with us. He might turn on us as we attack Israel. We don't know. I mean, he's kind of proven himself somewhat loyal here, but we don't trust him. So I think we should send him out. And that's what they do. And so David is rescued from a very difficult problem of his own making. 
Let's look at the finale. That's the fallout. Two very different... David's life is spared. Saul's life is taken. Let's look at the finale of the fearful fix. You saw the results. Now we turn to their responses. We'll look first again at Saul. Upon hearing that Saul will die the next day from the lips of Samuel, we pick up the narrative in chapter 31, and Saul watches his army fall apart, and then his sons die right before his eyes, including Jonathan. Parents, here's a word for us. Our children can suffer for our sin. That's a sobering truth that's taught in Scripture. You think my choices affect no one but me, but that's not true. What you do affects the lives and eternities of many who are connected to you. Now, praise the Lord for grace, that it doesn't run in bloodlines. And God's grace is greater than our sin, and he overcomes it. But that that is a truth taught in Scripture, and that's one in which we hope. But there's also a truth alongside of Scripture that our actions have consequences. That's going to be true in David's life going forward. It's certainly true in Saul's life. And it's certainly true in David's life even up to this point. Israel sought a king because they didn't trust God to meet their needs. They didn't trust God to appoint a king for them. They wanted a king just like their nations. And that king in Saul turned out to be a self-seeking coward who consulted demons in times of trouble. That king didn't defeat the Philistines. His life ended with the Philistines on the offensive, taking up residence in all of Israel's cities. And Saul's last act is to watch his own sons die before he commits suicide. And then his armor was stripped from him. And it's displayed in a pagan temple as a testimony to Philistine strength. Look again at chapter 31. We'll read the verses that Matthew didn't read for us. Verse 8. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshean. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshean, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. That's how the book ends. His body fastened to a wall in a Philistine city in a pagan temple until the birds would come and eat away at the flesh. By the way, the place they hung up Saul's body was the same place where he was crowned. One commentary I was reading said this, And now it was night, and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bethshan amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. If you think about it, the book of 1 Samuel ends worse than when it started. Remember at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel had a corrupt leader named Eli. And because of Eli's corruption, both the leader and his sons died. And Israel was oppressed by the Philistines. That's the same thing that happens at the end of this book. The Israelites are no better off for having Saul as king. 
they're worse off. All attempts to be our own king, hear this, dear ones, will end up worse off than when you started. Saul seemed to use God more than serve God. Saul wanted God to be his co-pilot, someone to ride along, offer suggestions, be there to help him out in a jam. But dear ones, God does not come into our lives as a suggestion giver or a divine assistant. He comes as king. He comes to take over. Elizabeth Elliot said, If the distance between the sun and the earth were the thickness of one piece of paper, then the distance between earth and the closest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The distance across our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high, and our galaxy is but a speck of dust on the floor of the Sahara Desert. The Bible says God upholds all of us by the word of his power. Is this really the kind of God you ask into your life as an assistant? Larry Crabb said, our problem is that we don't want to find God to know him. We want to find him in order to use him to make our lives work. That's what Saul's doing. What about David, though? What happens as David responds? He's returning to Ziklag after being sent out. He's getting ready to pack up his stuff and move back. But how does chapter 30 begin? Notice what's happening as David returns. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. So David returns and finds the town that he helped to build and establish and protect burned to the ground by the Amalekites and the people taken captive. Now, how does David respond? Look at verse 4. Then David and his people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. What did it say about Saul? He had no more strength. David has no more strength. So let me get this right. Saul has no more strength, crying out to the Lord. The Lord's not hearing him. The Lord turns a deaf ear to him. David sins has no more strength, cries out to the Lord. And just as Saul did when he discovered the news of his coming death, so David weeps. Sin brings sorrow in Saul's life and David's life. Just as Saul's sin brought about the death of Jonathan, so David's time among the Philistines has led to the sacking of the city he lived in and the kidnapping of his family. But notice verses 5 and 6. David's two wives also had been taken captive. I know them of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. And David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's a key phrase. And it marks something of the difference in how David dealt with his failure and how Saul dealt with his. But wait a second. Didn't Saul try to strengthen himself in God too? But God didn't let him? Why is he letting David? We'll come back to that. Now what did being strengthened in God actually lead David to do? 
he seeks the Lord as to whether he should engage in a counterattack on the Amalekites in verses 7 and 8. And the Lord tells him, speaks to him, not silent to David, silent to Saul, but not silent to David. Tells him to pursue the Amalekites and he assures him that he will succeed. So David sets out with his 600 men and heads for them. However, 200 men are exhausted and they stay behind in verses 9 and 10. And so David proceeds with 400. And on the way, they encounter an Egyptian who feeds them, much like the medium of Endor did with Saul when he was tired and hungry. This is an unbeliever. And David experiences something of a resurrection, similar to what Saul kind of sprung back to life, got energy renewed. We're even told that David had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David discovers that this man, though an Egyptian, is an Amalekite who participated in the raid on Ziklag. He was one of the people who sacked the city that David lived in. So David makes a request of this man in verse 15. He says, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And so two things happen. David goes down and he succeeds. He recaptures everything they've taken. Not one thing is missing. No one's dead. All the spoils are recovered. And then David returns to his men who were too exhausted to accompany him. And what might you think his response would be? He just went down and recovered at risk to his own life and the life of his men all that the Amalekites had stolen from that city of Ziklag. They captured all of David's family. They'd spoiled, they'd taken, taken all the spoils out of the city. David recovers all of it, comes back to these men who were exhausted sitting on a hill or sitting in the desert or sitting somewhere. You might think, oh, I can't wait to lay into these guys. But notice what David does. He responds with grace. Look at verse 21 of chapter 30. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows, that is among the 400 that went with him, said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. Take your kids, take your wife, go. We don't want to have anything to do with you. You didn't help us. You didn't lift an arm or or a spear to do anything in this battle. You get nothing but what you had, your family. You can take them. But David said, verse 23, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is he who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. It's a beautiful picture of grace. And as David returns to Ziklag, he sends the spoils of war throughout the cities of Judah, wherever David and his men have been. How different the two outcomes are between David and Saul, aren't they? Saul's final defeat stands in sharp contrast to David's victory. The Lord is silent when Saul calls on him, but hears and helps David. While the army that Saul leads incurs many casualties as they flee from the Philistines, there is no loss of life among David's men, and Israel's enemies, according to chapter 30, are the ones who flee. 
Saul dies a failure, losing his kingdom, his dignity, his sons, and his life. He leaves Israel in a state of disarray, having lost much of the land to Israel's enemies. Saul's downfall is foreshadowed in Hannah's song at the beginning of 1 Samuel. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and verses 9 and 10, we read the following words in Hannah's own prophecy at the beginning of the book. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Hmm. That sounds like Saul to me. Sounds a little bit like David, too. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. David's success, turning to God, defeating Israel's enemies, restoring what was lost, rescuing his family, are also foreshadowed in Hannah's song. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, we read, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. And really, it doesn't have much in the end to do with David at all. It's all of grace and it's all of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And David doesn't even get named. Now I want to conclude with two lessons. First from the life of Saul and second from the life of David. And I want you to just pause and think before we dive in here. You know, having looked at the lives of David and Saul, there are clearly some differences. There are some distinctive contrasts. But the more that you read 1 Samuel, the more you realize there's a lot of similarity between some of them too in terms of the way they respond to things. Now, there's some distinctives that are really clear and really important. But one of the things that 1 Samuel teaches us is we like to have things in black and white. We like to have our heroes There's the, they're, they're right there. That's the hero. David's the hero. And then Saul, he's the bad guy. And that is just crystal clear that way. It's neat and tidy that way. The Bible will not let us do that. The Bible won't let us do that with people. David is a sinful man. He knows it. He's going to sin a whole lot more going forward. Worse than he's done even to this point. And what ultimately is operating here is the sovereign grace and goodness of God in spite of people's sin. Not, now that doesn't mean that their sin doesn't have consequences. They do, some temporal, some eternal. So let's come to these lessons. First from Saul, second from David. What's the lesson from Saul's life? Well, there's many, but I'm just going to isolate one for our, because of our time. First of all, and only of all, <laughs> His life is a vivid portrait of what it looks like when someone tries to retain kingship over their own life. I'll say that again. His life is a vivid portrait of what it looks like when someone tries to retain kingship over their own life. His life, especially in its final days, is a startling example of what happens to those who turn their backs on God. As I said last week, We don't stop being religious when we reject God. We just become increasingly controlled. 
by the flesh and the world and the devil. As a result, we may find ourselves desperate from time to time and call on God to bail us out of our mess, but don't be surprised if the heavens ring hollow and our prayers aren't answered. When all we intend to do after he's rescued us is return again to our own vomit. If we ask for the wrong things with the wrong motives, using God instead of serving God, we continue our friendship with with world and we reveal that we are really enemies of God. It's a, it's a sad and startling look at a life lived under one's own kingship. So may I speak tenderly, but I hope faithfully to some here who are perhaps in Saul's condition. That is living life presently under your own kingship. Jesus is not your Lord functionally. You refuse to acknowledge God's true king, the true Lord's anointed. Saul refused to acknowledge the Lord's anointed in his day, David, so we can refuse to acknowledge the Lord's anointed in our day, who's the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. And therefore, we are at war with God to retain sovereignty over our own lives. And if you're in that state, behold your end in the end of Saul. I'm not saying this is the way it's going to end. Head's not probably going to be cut off and you're going to be nailed to a wall in a pagan temple. It's not going to happen. But your life will be proper for a while, maybe 70 or 80 years. But in the end, he'll be worse off than Saul's was. Don't wait. Don't rely on late repentance. If Saul's life teaches us anything, it's people typically die as they lived. There were two thieves next to Jesus on the cross, but you probably aren't going to be one calling on Jesus at the end to save you. Your odds are not better than 50%. As J.C. Ryle said, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. Compare how these two passages are sober and soberly take assessment. Compare these two passages. 1 Samuel 28, 5 and 6. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when he inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now contrast that with this passage. 1 Samuel 30, verses 6 to 8. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So let me get this right. Saul consults the Urim and the Thummim and the priestly ephod, and he gets no answer. David consults the same thing, and he gets an answer. Both were sinners. Both were in need of grace, and yet David is received and Saul is rejected. Why? Why? 1 Samuel 15, 24 to 26 tells us why. 1 Samuel 24 to 26 of chapter 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And from that point on, God is silent when it comes to Saul. Not a word. 
God decisively and irrevocably rejected Saul in that moment. Saul was receiving what he deserved. David received what he didn't deserve. One received justice. The other received mercy. But listen, neither of them got injustice. Let's assume that all men are guilty of sin in the sight of God. Just assume that, right? From the mass of humanity, God sovereignly decides to give mercy to some of them. What do the rest get? They get justice. The saved get mercy. The unsaved get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Is there anything evil about grace? Of course not. Is there anything wicked about God being merciful? No. God gets to decide who he's going to be merciful to. That's one of the points of David and Saul. Why did God choose David? Because he chose David. There's not a reason. Well, David was a man after God's own heart. David was the man of God's own choosing. David, it was God's heart that led him to David. Not because of anything necessarily in David. Now, there were qualities in David that that God recognized. Sure, but that wasn't the ultimate decisive reason behind God's choosing him. Those whom God elects and sovereignly saves receive his grace, but those who do not receive his grace receive his justice. Exactly what they deserve. Now, do we really believe that grace is sovereign, that God is sovereign? Well, Paul goes on to answer this very question in Romans 9. He says, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, by no means. Did not God say to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy? God sovereignly has the right to be generous in his mercy to one without being required to give it to the other. And this is precisely what we see with Saul and David. Our duty is clear. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Implying he will not always be. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when? While he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous one his thoughts. Let him return to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Today is the day of salvation. You're not, you're not to sit there in your seat wondering, am I a Saul or am I a David? Seek the Lord while he may be found. His, he, he, he may be found. These are days of mercy and salvation and grace for anyone who comes to the Lord. It said, Isaiah doesn't say, well, make sure that God is seeking you first. He says, no, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Return to your God. Why? He will abundantly pardon you. He's not going to turn his ear to the cry of a, a, of a sinful person who desires his mercy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I will never turn you away. Right now is the moment to believe. This service is the hour to repent. Don't be like Saul, where you go on hardening your heart to a point where you're just beyond recovery. But what about David? What's the lesson we learn from his life? Well, like David, we too know what happens as a result of trusting in ourselves, right? <laughs> and the problems that causes both for ourselves and those we love. We've fled in fear before, and we've come to see that like David, it's only made the situation worse. 
David spent time in a city defending it that was later burned to the ground by his enemies. The family he spent time protecting was taken out of him, taken away from him in a raid. And though he faced consequences for his unwise choices to hide among the Philistines and his sin of fearing Saul instead of fearing the Lord, he turned to the Lord in humble acknowledgement and the Lord strengthened him and helped him. But what about Saul? Well, like David, Jesus strengthened himself in God when men rejected him and he pressed on to do God's will. Jesus, like David, is our great leader who won a great victory over God's strongest enemy, Satan. And what is our response? Who are we in this story? You know who we are? We're the 200 that stayed back because we're exhausted and we got nothing else left. And you know what we get from our captain? Everything. Our Jesus comes back and he says, you get all the spoils that I earned for you. This is our Jesus. We were those who didn't lift a finger to do anything to provide salvation for ourselves. Our great captain and savior Jesus did it for us just like David did for Israel. And we sit there at the brook exhausted and tired and can't do anything about it. And David shows up and he says, everything I've earned is yours. There's other people that might say, Maybe even in the church, don't give them anything. They don't deserve it. No, we rejoice just like the angels in heaven when one sinner repents and comes home. Like David, Jesus rescues all those he came to save. He's lost none. He got all the spoils. No one will be found on that last day out of the fold. He's going to bring them all. He's not going to lose one of them. And we, like David's 200 men who were too exhausted to fight, receive everything that was won by our captain. Jesus, like David, gained back more than what we lost when sin and Satan defeated Adam in the garden. We don't merely regain the status that Adam lost. We're better off than Adam ever was. Because the righteousness that we possess by faith in Jesus is permanent and fixed and it can never be lost. And the righteousness that we will one day have personally and really in our glorification will be fixed and eternal and never lost, never waver, no desire to sin. We are in such a better position because of what our king and captain has done for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't make you desire to come to him, I don't know which will. All that Jesus requires is sitting there by the brook exhausted exhausted, tired of being my own king, tired of trying to figure this life out on my own, tired of trying to do my own thing. I want you, Jesus, and he will have you. He will always, always have you. And it's good for us as believers, isn't it, to be reminded that we don't have to perform well for Jesus to like us and love us. It's our need, it's our weakness, it's our exhaustion, it's our fatigue, It's our getting it wrong again and again and coming back to him in fresh repentance and desiring fresh forgiveness that he loves. He lights up when we do that. He's a friend of sinners. Always has been, always will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this sobering and comforting word.
We are sobered by what we see in the life of Saul. We are sobered by the reality that some of what we see in Saul is in us. Some of the same sorts of tendencies, the same sorts of fears, the same sorts of attempting to get things in our own power, in our own way, being our own king. But we thank you, Lord, for also what we see of Jesus in and through your work in David. The ways that you redeemed him out of his mess, the way that you showed him mercy when he didn't deserve it, the way that you protected him in his folly and his foolishness. Lord, we are no better off than Saul. We are all born dead in trespasses and sins. We are prone to wander. We are like sheep without a shepherd. We are lost and led astray. And we deserve your justice. And yet in your mercy, you have sent a greater than David to us. One who has fought our battles and defeated our greatest enemies and won for us what we could never win for ourselves, whether it be because of our own exhaustion or because of our own righteousness, which we could never perform. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of justice, but we thank you so much more that you're a God of mercy, that you're a God who delights in steadfast love, who abounds in mercy and grace towards all who call upon you. We confessed it earlier in the service. We come to an abundantly pardoning God. Who is a pardoning God like you? Lord, help us to be sobered by any tendency to try to exercise kingship over our own lives, seeking, knowing where it eventually leads. And help us to rest in the king that you have provided who treats us better than we would ever treat ourselves and does more for us than we would ever be able to do for ourselves. When all we would bring upon ourselves is increased sorrow and misery at the end, he brings us victory and joy and life eternal. We praise you and bless you, Lord Jesus.